It's good to be back with you guys this week uh, after uh, some time off. Um, I want to go ahead and get right into uh, the message and my introduction uh, for this week. We're continuing with Mark the Evangelist, and it's number five. No, wait, 55. <laughs> Sermon 55, and we're not going to stop. We're going to go straight through. I've titled this week, Rejecting the Cornerstone. <clears throat> so, first of all, I want to thank my pastor, and I, and I say that with much affection and, frankly, much accuracy. I want to thank my pastor, Brian Yost, uh, for preaching for us last week while Laura and I were away. And he was, uh, man, he was so good. I was in tears a little bit just watching him. Laura and I were watching. <clears throat> um, you know, I told him it had been a kind of a cuff eight tough eight months for Grace Life, especially for those in our congregation who are high risk of COVID and those are precious families who have kids. And uh, I thought when I told him that, I just said, just preach whatever you want, but that's kind of where we are. And I thought Brian did a masterful job reminding us why Grace Life is the kind of church it is, the kind of church we are. He reminded us about our foundation. And it's good occasionally to be reminded, is it not? about your foundation, especially when times get tough. It's important to remind it how solid your foundation is. And Brian reminded us about our core values of being mobile, organic, biblical, and generous, and how they resonate with him. He talked about our unique structure, our biblical foundation, the things that make this church unique. We have our struggles for sure. My question is, have you ever taken time to evaluate your own foundations? Some of you aren't going to like this sermon. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room. It's a little bit in your face, and it's going to be some challenging things that we're going to say. But some of us need to analyze and look at our own foundations in our families, our finances, our businesses or our place of employment, what we do for a living, And we especially need to evaluate our foundations when it comes to our faith and our connection with Jesus. Is it possible that you are a little bit deceived and you think you have chosen the correct foundations and you think you might be solid, but in reality, you might very well be on ominous, shifting sand that's right under your feet? Sometimes the foundations we choose can look great, but cracks form. So with that in mind, let's read the passage this week from Mark chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. It's a little bit longer of a passage, but it is a full teaching pericope that all stays together. Here's what uh, Mark says. And he began to speak to them in parables. He's speaking to the Pharisees in the temple. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took the servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, the landlord sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. This is a recurring thing happening on and on. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. He finally sent his son to them saying, they will surely respect my son. But the tenants, the farmers, said to one another, this is the heir. 
come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, another word for foundation. This was the Lord's doing, and it is a marvelous thing in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So we do each passage each week. We we break down the historical, the theological, and the personal. There's a lot here in the historical this week, so bear with me. First of all, I want you to understand we're going to be talking about vineyards and farmers in just a minute. But I want to set the fact that what's happening here is Jesus is showing a huge public disrespect to the religious elite. It's still what we have called Confrontation Wednesday, right? You had Palm Monday, and then you had Temple Tuesday, and now this is Confrontation Wednesday. It's a continuation of this tense face-off between Jesus and the Pharisees. They have wanted to be rid of Jesus for quite some time. For three years now, they've looked for a way to get him out of the picture. But now, that desire to get him out of the picture is also filled with fear, and now they're desperate to do it, to somehow disrupt his ministry. And Jesus has gone far beyond interrupting their temple tradition like he did on Tuesday when he cleansed it and said, this will be a house of prayer. He's now taking full aim at their their reputation. He's destroying their temple business and he is robbing them of what they treasure most, their power. He is more popular than them and now he is about to condemn them directly in public, in their very own temple that they have spent so much time and energy renovating and rebuilding. He is ruining, Jesus is, he is ruining Passover for everyone. And they know that they are becoming helpless to stop him because of his immense popularity in the temple that day. You remember the last time I preached, he was preaching everywhere and big crowds were gathering everywhere he went in the temple, this big two or three or four acre compound, everywhere he goes, they're following. And remember, Jesus had refused to answer their question. They said, by whose authority are you saying and teaching these things? And he said, I don't have to answer you. I'm the authority. And after that, he launches into this scathing parable about the vineyard and the tenant farmers. You ever been shocked, embarrassed, when someone calls you out publicly in front of friends? Like they say something that's true and you're a little bit stunned and maybe you giggle a little bit. <laughs> and then you get quiet and you start looking around. What are you talking about? You're looking at everybody's eyes to see if they're looking at you. Oh, yeah, they're looking at you. <laughs> and then you get quiet because you don't know what to say. That's them right here. You see all eyes are on you. Maybe you grin a little bit, you laugh, an awkward, uncomfortable smile, and it's mortifying. That's what's about to happen as he teaches this parable about a landlord, his vineyard, and the evil tenant farmers. Let me explain to you about vineyards in Israel. Israel has many hillsides that are full of rocks. It's a very rocky place. And you couldn't grow crops like grains and all that stuff on these hillsides. The only thing you could use that for is vineyards. So valleys and flatlands where you planted these other things. But a hillside could also, while it has a lot of rocks, it could have very fertile soil under the rocks. 
So it would be a great spot for a vineyard, which is a very crucial crop in the first century, right? Because you didn't know how to uh, really uh, sanitize water. They didn't understand the concepts of boiling it so people would get sick. So wine was actually the safest place, safest thing to drink. So a vineyard with grapes would be very important. And so grapes became a crucial thing because of that lack of understanding. But it's crucial if you're going to have grapes, you've got to find a good plot of land. You don't want to take up a flatland or a valley for a vineyard because grapes don't really need a lot of land space. They kind of grow up and out. But then the real work begins, turning this little hillside uh, place that has fertile soil, turning it into a productive vineyard is a lot of work. You know, as vines grow up from a stalk and they grow out, so you need less surface area, but you do need soil. So you begin to prepare this rocky hillside. you got to remove literally tons of rocks. And you cut out this terrace in the hillside, and you maybe flatten it a little bit like a step kind of a thing so you can work it safely. Then you take those rocks that you just moved, and you perhaps build a wall around your terrace, around your vineyard, and then maybe even a moat to keep out animals and maybe unwanted people to protect the crops. Then you build a structure in the middle that you use a wine press that you use to crush the grapes and produce the wine that you would sell. Now, this process is not a month or so. It could take two, three, sometimes even four years before a plot of land is turned into a vineyard that can produce fruit that the landlord can expect a return on. There's a big trust issue here, right? The, the landlord has to have farmers that he trusts because, you know, it could take a while. So let me talk to you about these tenant farmers and how it would work, right? Uh, the landlord-tenant-farmer relationship was very crucial to first century agriculture in Israel. And Jesus is using this well-known custom, this institution, to call out the religious elite. See, very few farmers actually owned the land that they worked. They worked it for a landlord, who expected them to produce a productive vineyard. So honest, skilled farmers were crucial. So the landlord would work diligently once he finds a tenant farmer, he finds a good one, and then he begins to provide all the things necessary that the farmer would need. Provides the land, provides the resources, the money for, for, for crews and things like that. And the farmer provides the expertise and the management to make sure this vineyard, whether it's one, two, three, or four years down the road, becomes a profitable one. Farmers lived on this land. They didn't work there and go home. They stayed there 24-7, 365, working to make it as productive as possible for himself and the landlord. And in return, the farmer would pay the landlord with money or a portion of the crops of the fruit harvested in the vineyard when harvest would came, when harvest would come. It could take several years for the landlord to see this return. So we'd have to have a lot of patience and trust. And when the harvest finally does arrive, the landlord would send a trusted representative or maybe even come himself to collect his share. So that's the history. What about the spiritual side? I want to talk about this parable. It's actually a parable about rejection. <clears throat> I want to start off with this idea of bitter fruit. What Jesus does, it's brilliant. He starts off this parable by quoting Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which is a passage that every good Jew, especially Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, they would know it's a, it's a story about a vineyard that produced bitter fruit that was useless. Everyone would know this story. In Isaiah, what the landlord did is he did everything right, setting up the vineyard, getting the farmer. He expected good fruit. 
But all he got was disappointing bitter fruit. And when the harvest came, he went to the vineyard to collect his share. And Isaiah describes what he found. Here's what he found. He said he looked for righteousness, but all he saw was bloodshed. And in Hebrew, it's a rhyme. He said you look for, for, for mishpat, righteousness, but all he saw was mishpak, bloodshed. So it's, it would rhyme in Hebrew. So that's the story that Jesus is referencing in Isaiah chapter 5. It's a stunning embarrassing public indictment about these, who, who these religious zealots really are. And this passage would make it very clear to all in earshot, which, by the way, is probably thousands. Everyone knows who is in the parable and what Jesus is teaching. So let me just break it down for you. The landlord, obviously, is a picture of God the Father, Jesus, Jehovah. The vineyard is the kingdom of heaven, the temple, Israel. The tenants are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They are the evil farmers. The fruit is supposed to be salvation to all nations. And what what, what had they turned the temple into? A place where Gentiles were not welcome. That's the fruit that he expects. The fruit that is bitter is nobody's getting salvation. Who are the servants? They are the rejected prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all throughout the Old Testament, and it is also JTB, John the Baptist. These are the servants, the prophets that have been rejected. Many of them were killed, ending with the greatest prophet of all. Jesus says none is greater than John the Baptist. They reject reject them all, killing many of them, just like the servants in the parable. But then there's the final messenger, which is the father's son, Jesus. So that's the parable. I want to talk about this relentless landlord. See, these, ten- these tenants intended to make the vineyard their own. They were going to steal it. They had no regard for the will of the landlord. The landlord sent messenger after messenger to the farmers, and they were ignored, mocked, beaten, and many of them were killed. But he was relentless. He kept sending them. He wanted to collect his harvest. Nothing was going to hinder him collecting his harvest. All the Father will give to me will come to me. No man can pluck them out of my hand. See, this is a picture of how relentless God is in coming after us. His harvest. He will do anything, send anyone necessary. So the landlord sends his only son. Surely they will honor my son. And when they do, even though they have rejected and killed my servants and done all these things, even though they are doing all that, I will still forgive them. They will be reconciled to me. Everything will be fine. Because certainly they won't reject my son. That would be like rejecting me, and they would never do that. But there is a rejected son in this story. The evil tenants reject and kill the landlord's son. Another prophecy, by the way, right here by Jesus, that he knows his death is pending. But this is the first public prediction of his death. It's not just for the disciples. It's for everyone to hear, all the people listening and the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And he is telling those people, those three groups, he knows that they have rejected him and that they will kill him. As a matter of fact, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. He says, have you read the scripture? And he's going to quote this verse. Don't you see what's playing out here, guys? God has sent me, but you will reject me, and you will kill me. The stone the builders has rejected, this is from the Old Testament, Psalm 
118. The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous. He says, you've rejected the cornerstone. What was a cornerstone? It was the foundation and standard upon which a whole building was constructed. Because what the cornerstone would do is it had to be perfect. It had to be perfect in angle, had to be perfect in shape and measurement, and it became what the whole building would be built off of. It was the foundation. The rest of the structure had to conform to the cornerstone. Its angles and sizes or else the structure would be weak, susceptible to collapse. Here's what Jesus is saying. All this work and renovation you've been doing in the temple for the last 60 to 70 years, it's a waste of time. You remove the cornerstone. The only stone worthy of its foundation. Me. And Jesus asked the question, what do you think the owner is going to do to the evil tenants? Everyone knows what's going to happen. He says they'll be destroyed. All they were doing was trying to build the landlord's vineyard the way they wanted, but they rejected the cornerstone. So there's a lot there, right, in the personal and the theological, or the historical and theological. I'm going to go to the personal. I want to talk about our foundation. Cornerstone and foundation, they're synonyms. Just understand that. So this passage is very intimidating for a pastor to preach. It is so rich in imagery and truth. From the vineyard as a picture of the temple and the kingdom of heaven, there's a beautiful picture of the vineyard being given to new tenants, which is the church, right? There's a whole lot there. And I could, listen, I could spend two or three hours teaching you all this. So settle in. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> this isn't a Sunday school class. This isn't a seminary course. This is a sermon. A sermon isn't just about information, although we try to give you some of that. A sermon should have the goal of bringing conviction, desire for transformation. It should provide inspiration and motivation to live a different life, to see things differently. And that is the goal every time I try to write a sermon. I want something, I know what it's doing in my heart, and I want to figure out the best way to communicate it to you so that you're not just yawning through another church service, that you leave with something that says, okay, I got work to do. I think we need to spend some time as individuals this morning focusing on the ramifications and the importance of the right cornerstone, the right foundation. I'm going to ask you to, without fear, evaluate yourselves this morning. Start off with a verse from Ephesians that Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 20. He's talking about the church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, remember I told you about the measurements, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, the church. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I could preach a month on that. And there's more in Hebrews where he talks about living stones that's us. It's, I mean, it's incredible, right? There, there's so much rich. I got to be careful because I'll get off on tangents here, but I, I don't want to do that today. I want to focus. See, when Jesus said the evil farmers would be destroyed, the scribes and Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. This temple you've taken over and you've been restoring and renovating for decades, 
It's built on the wrong foundation. You look and you sound very spiritual. You look like Christians. You sound like Christians, but you don't really have a connection to my Father in heaven. You're like the fig tree I cursed a couple days ago that had no fruit. You have rejected me, God's son, God's cornerstone, God's foundation, the standard and measurement for which his temple is to be built upon. You have chosen instead cornerstones of comfort, cornerstones of piousness, cornerstones of arrogance, violence, politics, money, selfishness, and all of this is for you and you are yourself. You are evil farmers. And I fear, I fear many church people have done the same thing with how we approach our lives and how we approach church itself. Oh, Jesus might be a stone in our life somewhere, in our temple, somewhere in our thoughts, somewhere in our philosophy. He has an influence, but is he really the foundation, the actual corner? We look good, we say the right things, we do church things, but very little of some of what we do in church is really about the kingdom. It's about what we want, what we desire, what we need, just like it was for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. But the fact of the matter is, there is only one worthy cornerstone. Some people... Even people that are in the church, maybe not part of the church, but in the church, if you understand what I'm saying, some people spend their lifetimes either fully rejecting the only true cornerstone or even more dangerously, setting him in the wrong place. Guys, Jesus isn't a slogan, some figurehead, a necklace with a cross. He isn't a symbol to be acknowledged on Sunday but ignored for the most part, Monday through Saturday. Because whether you wholly reject him or put him in the wrong space, both are actually rejections. You cannot reject this cornerstone. He must be, Jesus, our full, singular foundation in everything we do. He is not for looks. He is not a fashion statement. He is not a political statement. He is the full standard, the only measure, the only foundation that will provide us with an eternal connection to our Heavenly Father. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 to 24, he uses a great parable. He warned people about those who would say, Lord, haven't we done many great things in your name? We know you, but they really don't. People who talk a good game. They look like Jesus is a cornerstone, but really isn't. Haven't we done many great works? But their foundations, even though they appear spiritual, are comfort, safety. And don't take this the wrong way because family is important, but sometimes their foundation is family or money or ambition or lust or dysfunctional relationships or maybe even addiction. Could be many, many number of things. See, church, it is not just enough to look 
or sound like Jesus is your cornerstone. He must actually be our cornerstone. Jesus says those who think they sound like they know Jesus and sound like, haven't we done many great things? They, they look the part. He says they're like houses built on sand that is washed away by rains. Then he says only a house built on the rock, the cornerstone, will stand. Now, some of you say, Pastor Joe, you're a little too harsh this morning. You're a little bit too dogmatic. You're not leaving any wiggle room here. Let me ask you, how much wiggle room did Jesus leave when he was talking to the religious people in the temple that day? Was there much? Even a centimeter? See, guys, there is an ultimatum. Ultimatum. It's God's ultimatum. See, I would imagine, first of all, let me just say, if you're actually even here this morning or watching online, either, either group, right, or maybe you're somebody who watches it later or catches the podcast, if you're here this morning, I imagine you haven't really outright rejected the corner. Oh, forget Jesus. He's a waste of my time. You're probably not in that group. But I'll tell you, I worked for two weeks, a little bit on vacation, a little bit before, on trying to come up with a pithy, clever summary of this passage so I could make sure that you go home with how important it is. And try as I may, I just could not beat a quote from my favorite preacher when he was preaching this passage. And this was the Sunday sermon preview this week, too, if you guys are able to see that on social media. Here's what Spurgeon says. He is God's ultimatum. Okay, that's pretty, no wiggle room there, is there? He's not like the next to the last chance. He is the last chance. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. Heaven contains no further messenger. Rejecting Christ, you reject all. And shut against yourself the only possible door of hope. Well, now that's politically incorrect. Let me further clarify this for you in case you think I did leave a little bit of space. Jesus cannot be your partial cornerstone. That's rejection. He's all or nothing. That is our only hope. And your foundation, whether or not Jesus is in the right place or is your foundation at all, your foundation is revealed by your commitment of your time, your talent, and your treasure to the kingdom of heaven. Whether like the Pharisees, you focus on what it is you can get from the church instead of what you can sacrifice for it. The fact of the matter is the chief cornerstone, listen carefully, when it comes to constructing and building your life, the chief cornerstone is not a remodel to a structure that already exists. It's not an additional room to add on because you need a little more space for Jesus. No, when Jesus becomes your cornerstone, he demands, requires a complete rebuild because everything has to be built on the right measurement, the right angle, the right truth, the right perspective, the right philosophy, 
Jesus is not to be, Christian, a painting on a wall in your life. He's not an elf on a shelf. He's not a religious facade. He must be the beginning, the foundation upon which everything that you believe, everything you hope, everything you do, everything you ever trusted in is based upon that. Any other calibration of Jesus in your life, any other position in your life, ends in ruin and catastrophe, like it did for the evil farmers. He is the only acceptable cornerstone. The right foundation cannot be something that you get around to someday. That's not who Jesus is. Well, yeah, he is the right foundation, and one day I'm really going to focus on that. Well, then, by definition, he's not your foundation. One day I'll really get my walk with Jesus going. I'll, I'll get better. I'll get back to my time in his word and praying and, and serving other people. I'll get back to that. If you have to say that, then you need a rebuild. The right foundation is something that needs to be the very beginning. You know, I have written this sermon in a way, and I, I spend a lot more time on this one than I normally do during a week. I have written this sermon to make every one of us feel a bit uneasy. My goal is to make you a little bit uncomfortable, even trust me, myself. This sermon is written in this way, to be a call to all of you that are listening at home, are here, it's a call for you to evaluate your foundation. And if necessary, abandon your sinking sand and build a new life on the one true cornerstone. And I'm going to pray in just a moment. I'm going to ask God today to reveal to you the state of your foundation. Is it really truly Jesus at the corner? Is it really truly him or is he someplace else in your structure? Heavenly Dad, we, we confess to you that making you our foundation is something that takes supernatural intervention. Frankly, humanly speaking, we don't want you as our foundation. <laughs> We'd rather have us at the foundation, making sure we have what we need in our life. But, Father, we know how that ends. And even though to do that we have to reject messenger after messenger after messenger, I pray that the hearts of the people that are listening here today, those with whom, Jesus, you are their foundation, you would encourage them in saying, yes, you're not perfect, yes, you struggle, but I see that you have made me the cornerstone. For them, Lord, I pray that you would give them encouragement satisfaction, peace. And for those who maybe have been messing around with the foundation, maybe they've put you on a shelf or maybe they've hung you as a picture, maybe they had you as an addition to their house, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to say, whoa, 
I need to completely demolish and start all over and make Jesus my foundation. Lord, I know that when they hear that, that might be a very scary thing to consider. But help them to be motivated to see the joy that comes with a life that is not built on the sinking sand of all these other things that we put our confidence and hope in. But when our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, your blood and righteousness. Because we want to be able to say, I may not be perfect. I struggle every day, but this I know, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we love you. I pray that you would evaluate. We're praying for you this week. If you need anything, give us a call. We've got your back. One other announcement I'll make. We're going to have a Christmas Eve service here on the 24th. Christmas Eve is always the 24th, is it not? You'll be getting some information to email about that. It'll be a family-friendly service here. Uh, we got some really cool, exciting things. It's going to be kind of a combination with Grace Life TV, the things that we did a few months back. It's going to be really cool, and Megan and I are really excited about it. So we love you. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon.